Last year, Hurricane Ian struck Southwest Florida, inflicting the deadliest hurricane strike on the state since the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. The National Hurricane Center report gives a direct and indirect death toll exceeding 150 fatalities and lists Ian as the costliest hurricane in Florida history and the third costliest in U.S. history. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. Welcome to podcast episode number 81, revisiting Hurricane Ian one year after landfall in Southwest Florida. On this episode, we look back at Hurricane Ian a little more than one year after it struck Southwest Florida, hearing what it was like for professionals to live and forecast this storm and what recovery was like uh, about one year later and what are the lessons learned as we move forward. This podcast features two interviews. The first is with Matt Devitt, Chief Meteorologist with Wink TV in Fort Myers, Florida. Matt provides a trusted voice in Southwest Florida and shares his perspectives of Hurricane Ian on the region. We'll also interview Casper and Kylie Gregory with the Tropical Weather Threat Society. Although they are now based near Tallahassee, their family has generations of history in Southwest Florida and Ian impacted many of their closest family and friends. If you're new to the podcast, GeoTrek travels the world covering stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We dig deep into these stories, discovering insights about the physical processes of extreme events, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of them to reduce the loss of life and property. The cost of this podcast is your agreement to share this content with someone who is an extreme weather junkie, lives in a hurricane-prone region, or is interested to learn more about disaster preparedness and resiliency. Without further introduction, let's jump into our interview with Matt Devitt. Matt, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Matt, you're there in in Fort Myers. You've been doing excellent weather forecasting and communication for years, building a really extensive loyal following there. And all of a sudden, a year ago, here came Hurricane Ian. Can you walk us through what it was like to forecast and live through Hurricane Ian? Yeah, Hurricane Ian was another case, almost like Hurricane Michael in 2018, where this storm went from a nothing to a something real fast. And that's oftentimes the type of hurricane and storm that meteorologists and forecasters, we fear the most. And the reason why we, we, we fear them because we're prepared and we know what's going to happen, but our viewers and those in the path of these hurricanes prepared. So, for example, let's bring up uh, Hurricane Michael in 2018. That storm went from a tropical depression to a Category 5 in three days. If you don't have a plan in place well before the storm, there's there's going to be cases where you're either caught off guard or you don't have the plan that you should have had. And... It's these rapid intensification hurricanes that are oftentimes the worst because if you don't have a plan, you're going to be scrambling at the last minute. And Ian was forecasted to be a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, but not many of the models had this as an upper end four, lower five, which it eventually came to be during the uh, early forecasts. You know, there, there was the, the potential of a major hurricane in Florida, but the initial forecasts were not showing upper four, lower five, which eventually came to be. So it's preparing viewers for all possibilities. That is obviously one of the forecasting challenges. And that's what came to fruition with Ian, as well as the uh, 
well-advertised issues that we had with the comb. Yeah, Matt, you know, it's not only the rapid intensification with the end, but also the the big shift in the track. It sounds like it was a one-two punch that was really hard for people to respond quickly in Southwest Florida. Yeah, so so here was the, the main forecasting issue with Ian. Three days before the storm, we've all seen the National Hurricane Center cone. And the cone, by definition, it means that the, the center of circulation two-thirds of the time is going to be within that cone. One-third of the time, it's out of it. So two-thirds of the time, it falls within the cone. The problem that I think a lot of our locals in Southwest Florida had was they didn't look at the cone. They just looked at the one point in the middle. And they said, the heck with the cone. I'm just looking at where that icon is and where that line is. And I think that led to a false sense of security because three days before the storm, it was pointing towards the Florida Big Ben. And in reality, three days later, now granted the landfall was within the extreme right side of the cone, but the center line had shifted 250 miles to the east just in three days so that unfortunately with a lot of my locals they you know if i had a dollar i I did 32 hurricane talks this summer and if i had a dollar for every single time a viewer came up to me and said well i thought it was going to go to tampa i thought it was going to go up the coast i'd be a millionaire it just that's what a lot of people thought and and despite my best efforts and some of the other local meteorologists, National Hurricane Center, just to, to say that, you know, we tried to say that don't just look at one point in the middle. you got to look at the whole cone. And then also impacts are oftentimes felt outside of the cone. For example, here's, a, here's another case where Naples, Naples for most of Ian's life as it approached the state of Florida, Naples was not in the cone. Naples ended up having at least eight feet of storm surge and occasional wind gusts of 100 miles an hour for a location that wasn't in the cone. So cone communication and threat communication is a very tricky beast. And that was the case also with Hurricane Ian. Matt, that's a good point. A lot of these deadliest impacts are to the right of the storm track. So if the hurricane tracks just inside the right edge of the cone, you can make an argument some of the most deadly impacts will be actually outside the cone. And so the forecasters could say, hey, it verified it was in the cone. People outside the cone are saying this is unbelievable. We had eight, nine feet of storm surge and we weren't even in the cone. Right on the money. And I mean, if you get a heavily sheared system and that shear is causing so much of the storm to be lopsided on the right side, you're exactly right. I mean, you you will have the dirty side of the storm, tornado threat, storm surge, strong wind, and uh, Ian was no exception. Matt, you talked about how many people fixated on the center point of the cone. And looking back now on Ian, I know you've done a lot of social science surveys, reaching out to your viewers to say, hey, I want feedback on you. Uh, tell us what you found on what people said about changing the center line of the cone. Um, I want to first start with saying that I I do believe the National Hurricane Center has some of the smartest and the best meteorologists, tropical meteorologists on the planet. Uh, With that said, there's always room for growth. And I have been a very big advocate of eliminating the center line of the cone. And it's because of my experience with Ian. Way too many locals looked at the center line. 
They thought it was going to go north when in reality, where it made landfall was still in the cone, but the whole thing, not just one point in the middle. So the unfortunate reality with Ian is that this was the deadliest hurricane in the state of Florida since 1935, not since the Labor Day hurricane in the Florida Keys. Here's the thing. 1935, they didn't have satellites. They didn't have Doppler radar. It basically got cloudy and windy, and then it was there. But in 2022, to have that type of a death toll, we have to do better. One life loss is one loss too many. And my job as a communicator is to prevent not only property damage, but more importantly, loss of, of life. And I am not happy until that death toll is zero. And if something isn't working, and if the death toll is as high as it was with Ian, I can't be complacent and I have to do something. And so I, I went back to the drawing board and I thought, what can I do to communicate hurricane threats better? And and I and I wanted and, and I basically circled back to eliminating the center line. Now I think human nature, we're gonna look at the middle of the cone anyway, but if I can at least try to drive home that we need to look at the entire thing, then I'm going to do it. So I experimented this year with taking out the center line and the feedback was incredibly positive. So for example, uh, I did a post survey after Ian in my local community, I had 1500 responses and unbelievably 96.4%, I asked them, do you agree with my decision of eliminating the center line? And 96.4% agreed. So, you know, is this something that the National Hurricane Center can look at and say, you know, you as you had noted about the social science of natural disasters, you know, I think that every single year we need to grow. We need to see what's working and what's not. And I, I am just not a fan of, of the center line of the cone. There was also a recent case uh, just within the past week or two with Philippe, where Philippe basically defied all forecasts and all models. And from the five-day cone, the first one that was issued, to what it ev eventually did five to ten days out, it was 700 miles away from the center line of the cone. And... That's not, I'm not do, saying that to knock the National Hurricane Center. They had a very difficult forecast. It was incredibly challenging, but it shows the unpredictable nature of these systems as you go more out into time. And it's just, I don't think that we have the consistent technology as of 2023 to say with a fixed point, this is where something is going to go X amount of days out. We need to give a range and leave some room for error that things can change. And that was the case with Ian just three days out as it deviated 250 miles east of its center line. And so that was one of the surveys that I asked my locals and they were incredibly positive and on board with removing that center line. Matt, you make a good point. I mean, the whole reason we have a cone is because there's sometimes a fairly large geographic spread on where this storm could go. Like you said, it's that cone is representing uh, center of circulation possibilities that are correct about two thirds of the time. 
I think when you put a center line there, you're saying, well, well, that point is more likely than other points. It, and it really draws a lot of focus and attention to it. It sounds like you're saying, hey, let's let's consider the whole cone and wider possibilities so people aren't fixated on this one solution that may or may not ever happen. Well, and the thing is, <laughs> if I wanted if I wanted us to just look at one point in the middle, we wouldn't even have a cone. We would just have a line. You just have a line and a point, right? <laughs> right, right. So we need to bust, in my opinion, and and everybody's different. The National Hurricane Center respectfully disagrees, but but also, you know, I I lost over a hundred locals from Ian. Our death toll in Southwest Florida was over a hundred, and collectively about one fifty across the state. And and my job is to prevent loss of life from natural disasters. That is my job as a communicator. And especially in my area, I, I, it is imperative that everybody knows the threats associated with these hurricanes. And, and I think Ian was a big wake up call for a lot of locals here. And, you know, unfortunately there were some cases where this was their first year in South of Florida. They're coming in from Michigan, Pennsylvania, and they're saying, holy smokes, is this how every storm is? And and that's, Ian was, without a doubt, and I did a lot of homework on this, it was statistically the worst natural disaster and the worst hurricane in Southwest Florida history. And uh, there was a bad hurricane in the 1920s that large loss of life for Lake Okeechobee. Uh, Lake Okeechobee is not technically defined as the Southwest Florida region. Uh, it's more South Florida, Southeast Florida. So by technicality, that hurricane was even deadlier, but that's not technically my, sure. my. So Ian was locally the worst hurricane we've ever had. It was number one in storm surge. It was number one in rainfall and it tied Hurricane Charlie for number one sustained wind at landfall 150. Yeah, it was just a beast of a storm. Just the meteorological conditions were uh, in, incredibly impressive. And then we have a much more populated coast as well compared to when we look back at the 1920s. Yeah, and the, I mean, I have I have a checklist when it comes to determining storm surge and how high it's going to be. And Ian almost checked off every single box. It was a big, slow-moving storm. And, you know, a second ago, I, I had just mentioned Charlie. Charlie, these were both 150 category fours at landfall. And Charlie was small and it was fast. Ian was big and it was slow. Charlie's storm surge was seven to eight feet in Southwest Florida. Ian's was 15 feet. So it comes to, it really shows and really drive, drives home that these dynamics of a hurricane, when it comes to determining storm surge, it's amazing the difference. These are both 150 category fours, but Ian was bigger, it was slower, and it allowed that water to pile up, and it literally had double the storm surge of Charlie. That, that's a good point. A lot of people just look at the maximum sustained winds at landfall. There's a lot more, like you said, the size, the the forward speed. And also Ian pre-landfall was a beast. Charlie was really rapidly intensifying right at the last minute didn't have as much time to push as much salt water. So really good observations there. Matt, I wanted to ask you too, it's, it's a year now basically since Ian hit, what does the recovery look like? What are the successes? What are the challenges there in Southwest Florida? We're doing okay. Um, we do need to be very realistic with the expectations. And, and 
Um, we have made a lot of strides, but this is going to take years. Uh, I have been, you know, I get asked the question a lot from locals or even people from out of town. And, you know, when do I think it's going to get back to what we remember it as and what we love? And, and I've been saying about five years. Um, Sanibel, Captiva, Fort Myers Beach, there's still some rough spots. And the, the biggest initial goal is the restoration of the infrastructure, clean water, electricity, getting the power grid up. That is the highest priority. And, and we did that in the weeks and even months. It took a while, even months, for the Barrier Islands after Ian. And then after that, we continue to build and build. But the thing is that I hope that, and I've, and I've seen some good plans in place for, for doing this, but it's one thing to rebuild, but we need to rebuild and build back stronger and smarter because it is inevitable that we will be hit again. As much as I would love to not have to deal with these things again in the future, we will get hit again. Ian is not the first and it's not the last. So how do we build Southwest Florida back stronger and smarter and smarter design, higher up, better materials? You know, that is how we, we rebuild and we become resilient after Ian. And uh, like, for example, there's been a lot of news stories uh, here in Southwest Florida. You know, what do we do to the piers and how much money do we put into it? And we're talking you know, some of these plans are 10, 20, 30 million dollars. And that's great and everything, but you better build that thing back stronger and smarter. And because, you know, uh, true story, the Naples Pier, since I believe 1888, has been partially or completely destroyed seven or eight times. So it comes to show that, again, this is going to happen again in the future, but we have to be smarter with how we grow south of florida back and you know a big part of our a big part of our com- economy is tourism and right now we have restaurants and we have businesses and just many areas in south of florida that are hurting and they have lost their business because the tourists are not coming in because it's not the south of florida that they remember so you know after the national media leaves the area after the disaster I think a lot of people need to know that, you know, we still are recovering and, and, you know, the, the impacts of the storm are still being felt even when all the cameras leave our area. You know, we still have a long road to recovery ahead uh, in South Florida. Matt, in, in what ways are people building back better? Are you seeing houses built higher, uh, better construction methods? I mean, how are people building back better? The, the first thing that you noted uh, a lot of these new designs and these um, new codes that have been in place, you, like you have to build higher. Um, actually, where I got married, which oof, this was a tough pill to swallow, um, where I got married um, two, just two years ago was a place called South Seas Resort on Captiva. And after Ian pulverized it, wiped it off the face, it was horrible to see all the beautiful memories and great times with my wife there and wiped it off the face of the earth. Um, but that resort is trying to build back higher. And I agree with that. 
and I agree with them. That resort also was pounded pretty hard during Charlie. And, and so I think that's the first thing that you have to do. If, if we are on these barrier islands, you got to build higher. You have to build higher. And, and, you know, there are many other residential areas along the U.S. East Coast and even in the Gulf of Mexico that, you know, hurricanes, this is not their first rodeo. They know that, and they built higher. It's just that Southwest Florida has not seen a storm surge like Ian ever. And, and statistically, uh, in 1873, there was a hurricane that brought 13 feet of storm surge. Hurricane Donna in 1960 brought 11 to 12 feet, but something like this type of storm surge has never been recorded in South Florida history. And, and I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes that there is always going to be that threat. So we need to build smarter. And it first comes with building higher. But then, like you said, you know, it's 2023. We have new technology. Let's implement that into how we build these homes and make them, smarter and more wind resistant. And it was very interesting, I'll be honest with you, seeing the destruction in South Florida with the pre-Andrew building codes versus after and the scope of the devastation, and especially with a lot of new home builds, I did not see a lot of widespread wind damage in the new building codes compared to the ones before 1992 with Andrew. It was almost like night and day, it was crazy. I, I was amazed, Matt. I rode out Ian and Punta Gorda. I mean, we were taking sustained winds in the 130s, and I was amazed how many roofs did really well. And a lot yeah. of locals said, hey, th this would have been damaged 30 years ago, but we put on an extremely durable roof after Charlie in 2004, and a lot of those roofs uh, did surprisingly well. Matt, I wanted to wrap up our interview by asking you one last question. What advice would you give for coastal communities that, in theory, could take a big hurricane hit? They haven't seen anything big in a long time what advice would you give them to help avoid complacency? Yeah. Do not take a chance with your life and the people that you love. A classic example of what you just said was Idalia a couple weeks ago. And I remember seeing interviews of people in Cedar Key where they said, eh, I'm not going to evacuate. And uh, even though these projections from the National Hurricane Center life-threatening storm surge. It was well over 10 feet. I think officially it was 12 to 13 feet. It was their preliminary number um, above ground level. And I saw these locals where they're saying, hey, I'm going to stay. I'm going to ride it out. And my heart just sank because it reminded me of people on Fort Myers Beach before Ian. And it's just, don't put yourself in that situation. Why? Like, why? Is it a Florida pride thing? You want to say, oh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, it'll be a, a night I'll never forget. No, you got one life to live. Don't take a chance on a storm that could end it all. You know, and, and especially for the life of, of either your kids or, your, or if you're taking care of your grandparents, don't take a chance. Evacuate if you are told to do so. The number one killer with tropical systems, it's water. It's not wind. It's water whether it be freshwater flooding or saltwater flooding from storm surge. So please, 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 for those that are watching this, don't ever take a chance. I know evacuating is not ideal. I know that better than anybody because uh, if you may recall, Hurricane Rita in 2005 
I'll take you back to that. Hurricane Rita, Houston metro area, there was a time where this Category 5 Hurricane Rita was showing the Houston metro area, the fourth largest in the nation, in the cone. And uh, it freaked out the city because this was the big hurricane after Katrina. So way too many people evacuated. And, and that's another topic I want to talk about here real quick, where way too many people evacuated. The roads got clogged. And I was living in Houston at the time, and I had plans to go to Dallas. I never made it. Ran out of gas. Took me 27 hours to go 93 miles. Thankfully, an elderly couple took me in, and me and my family in, and they provided a shelter. But there is such a thing as an over-evacuation. And, and I, I think that we need to watch out for that with future hurricanes, especially in South of Florida. So, for example, there, there's this misconception that when you're told to evacuate that you need to go you know, make a weekend plan to Nashville or go to Orlando or Tampa or Miami, just get the heck away from the water. You know, you can go find a friend inland, just get away from storm surge areas. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to Orlando or Jacksonville or hundred miles away. Just get away from the water. One of the, one of the most unsettling statistics from Ian is that our largest local shelter, Hertz Arena, it's where we have all the big venues, our minor league hockey team. We can fit thousands of people in there. It was not even near capacity. That's a good point, man. It's right. It's local, right? It's it's seven local. miles away for people. It's not yeah. at capacity. People are thinking they need to get to Orlando or, or take a hurricane. And it's like, like you're saying, sometimes just moving 10 miles is all you need to do. That's it. And, and, that arena was just 20 minutes away from Fort Myers Beach. All the people that died on Fort Myers Beach, it's just a 20-minute drive. And, and I know that shelters are not – it's the comparison I always make, and you probably have heard this before. Uh, for those that have cruised in their life, it's, it's, like, it's not like being on the Royal Caribbean beautiful room that you're in. You're on the lifeboat that's on the Royal Caribbean cruise ship. It's a means to get you through it. It's a means to make you survive the storm, but it ain't going to be luxury, but it also can save your life. So my, my thing that in future storms that we just need to be mindful of is that when you are told to evacuate, you need to do so. But we also need to keep the roads clear for those that truly do need to evacuate. So, for example, when you evacuate, you do it. You do it because of the potential of saltwater flooding. You don't evacuate because of the wind and the inconvenience of a hurricane. So what I'm getting at is the inland southwest Florida should not be evacuating and clogging the roads for those that are in the storm surge zones. You know what I'm saying here? That we, we need yeah. to have a very smart evacuation plan, and our inland friends should not be clogging the roads yeah. for those that truly do need to evacuate because of the potential of life-threatening storm surge. So the theme here, if you're told to evacuate, please do so, but make sure that you have a plan and that you're smart about it. Yeah, Matt, makes a lot of sense. You're talking about a very strategic approach where you're evacuating who needs to evacuate and telling people that don't need to evacuate, stay in place, shelter in place, so the people in the, the most dangerous areas can get out. Exactly. Matt, really, 
Really appreciate you taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. I'm hoping it's a long, long time until you see another storm, anything remotely close to Hurricane Ian. But when the next storm comes, I know a lot of the people in Southwest Florida are going to be better prepared because of the great work that you and your team are doing to not only forecast these storms, but the excellent communication you do. Um, hoping that, hoping uh, for the best in the recovery down there. And thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Matt, for sharing such profound insights with us on this podcast. Next, our conversation transitions over to Casper and Kylie Gregory, who help run the Tropical Weather Threat Society. Casper and Kylie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrack podcast. Thank you. Honored to be here. Y'all are doing just amazing work with forecasting and communicating tropical weather threats all over, not just the U.S. Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Coast, the Caribbean. You're doing a lot of that, but really your your heart and soul and a lot of your long-term family history was right there in Southwest Florida, right in the path of Hurricane Ian. Could you describe to us what was it like to see Ian bearing down on a place where you had so many personal connections and so many memories? It was watching a nightmare unfold in a very slow time. We, growing up down there, we've always heard of the worst case scenario. And we sort of seen it a little bit with that that track and that path with Charlie in 2004, with Wilma in 2005. But we never really seen all of that come together the way that it did with Ian. And it turned out to be, unfortunately, one of those generational storms. Yeah, the impact's obviously so catastrophic. It looks like over 100 lives lost. I mean, what were you doing as Ian approached landfall in, in, in the say, the day before landfall? I mean, I know that you, you're very uh, prolific working around the clock to communicate tropical weather threats. Do you remember what, what was it like and who were you communicating with as Ian approached the coast? We were in contact with a lot of friends and family down there, uh, urging them to seek higher ground to get away from the surge areas because we knew that the surge vulnerability of Southwest Florida is extremely high and that Ian was going to cause great damage. And we were even in contact with you prior to Ian's landfall. So we were taking all of the information that we were getting from you, the information that we were getting from the National Hurricane Center and the local meteorologists down there and really starting to try to put together a comprehensive, uh, really detailed uh, live streams on our page to really, really, because I could hone in on streets I knew neighborhoods. I had so much local knowledge of it that when I went to the um, Know Your Zone map for the state of Florida, I could get right down to the street level, You it, to the neighborhood, to telling everybody, look, you are not in a place that is safe. You need to seek higher ground. You need to go inland. And Thankfully, uh, you know, through a lot of the followers that we had, the message was heated and we ended up with no injuries or fatalities uh, from the followers of the page. 
Well, that local knowledge, local knowledge is so important. And even knowing your, your elevations and knowing where the surge could move. A lot of people were really surprised to see the surge come so far inland up the river, you know, and it sounds like you were in touch with people saying, hey, you may think that you're safe here because you're four miles inland, but the, the storm surge and the flooding can still reach you. Yes, um, we have uh, very close friends that we treat like family that live very near the Franklin Locks up the Caloosahatchee River. And on their property, they had standing water that they would have not been able to survive if they chose to stay. They were going to stay until Kylie really jumped in and, you know, kind of hit home with that saying that you have to leave. And the water rise before Ian's landfall really kind of stuck them and really kind of hit them like, oh, the storm is still hours away. And we're already beginning to see the Caloosahatchee River come up out of its banks. That really concerned them to a point to where, all right, maybe, you know, Casper and Kylie are right. We need to relocate and we need to evacuate. Thankfully, the morning of landfall, they did get out before the catastrophic surge came in. And from I asked them to make a, you know, the best determination of a high watermark that they had on their property. Not only did they have about a 55 foot boat in the yard from the marina uh, right next to kind of next to them across from the little side canal. One of those 55 foot boats broke its moorings and ended up in their yard, but their high water mark was maybe seven, seven and a half feet on the house. And I think it just surprised so many people. How many people, I mean, what per- proportion approximately of the people do you think were extra complacent because they said, well, we've already been through an upper level cat four. Hurricane Charlie hit 18 years ago and we didn't flood. There was no storm surge. So Ian isn't going to flood us either. That was complacency was a big problem. Most Um, of them, yeah. Yeah. uh, Complacency was a very, very large issue because not only did you have, you really didn't have a lot of, a lot of the residents remember Charlie or Wilma because of the, a lot of the relocation that took place once the pandemic hit in 2020 the surge of new residents down into Southwest Florida after that was extreme. So there was a lot of people that had either very little knowledge or zero experience with a hurricane. They've seen it on TV, but they've never had to experience it themselves personally. And a lot of the people were trying to compare the most recent storm in Irma to what they were going to see with Ian. But Irma tracked far enough to the east to where it made landfall into Marco Island and ran up the coastline instead of being offshore 20, 30 miles to really get that core force of that front right quadrant to push onto the shore. So a lot of the big storm surge for Irma occurred south of Naples and Marco Island into more undeveloped areas like Chocoloski and the Everglades City, uh, Goodland, Copeland, those areas down there 
to where there's just not a lot of infrastructure and a lot of people. So the story of the big surge really didn't get put through the media. They would yeah, show know, some. Oh, it, go ahead. It's interesting. A lot of people say, well, Irma never had a storm surge. They blew the storm surge forecast. When you look at the National Hurricane Center inundation map, it shows at least nine feet of saltwater inundation. But like you said, in some really remote areas, getting closer to the Everglades, it didn't impact as many people. So a lot of people don't even realize that Irma did produce a pretty substantial storm surge just farther yeah, south. Irma, a lot of people also forget that Irma was weakening at landfall. Irma didn't make landfall as the Category 5 monster that it was before it reached Marco Island and Florida. Yeah, that 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 played a major factor into it. I mean, a lot of people didn't even look at the keys. The keys got a good amount of storm surge. But for some reason, that was never really it never really caught traction in the media. You know, it was more of the wind damage that took place and the power outages from Irma going all the way up the state. And the storm surge became that little kind of it got slid to the back burner and and never really got discussed at all. Well, Casper, you brought up a good point when you're in that front right white, the front right quadrant, especially the front right quadrant of a large, slow moving major hurricane where you're on the onshore side, the onshore winds. It's a completely different game than getting brushed or, you know, a lot of these storms move across the peninsula from east to west. So you get people in, if it's Fort Myers, Naples, Tampa, Sarasota saying, oh, we've been through hurricanes our whole life. You've never been in the front right quadrant of a land falling major hurricane, right? That, that's, that's putting in a 14, 15 foot storm surge before. And yes, that is true. And even it, like you said, from uh, systems that move from east to west across the peninsula, that front right quadrant for the East Coast catches the onshore flow. That same front right quadrant coming off on the West Coast is offshore flow. That's right. So for them, it is, you know, well, I've been in a front right quadrant before. The storm moved across. No, you haven't. I mean, you have, but you haven't seen the combination of the onshore flow with that front right quadrant. Well, that's and, right. If it's moving east to west across the peninsula, if you're on the west coast and you're in the front right quadrant, it's a strong offshore wind pushing the water offshore. The wraparound winds, you're maybe getting six feet of storm surge or, or four feet on the backside, but it, it's a very different game than what y'all saw in Ian. Yes. And, and not only that, but it's also moving away from the coastline and it never really had, as it comes across the peninsula, it hasn't built up that water bubble that is associated right. with a tropical cyclone because it's coming across land. And that has, I believe, for some of the older residents in on the West Coast, I believe that that, give, that, that almost gives like a false sense of impacts because oh, yeah. they don't, they say, well, we've had the onshore winds, we've seen storm surge, but the storm was moving away from you came across land and continued further out instead of the storm starting from out there and coming to you the other direction. And that is the biggest risk for the, the West coast of Florida. 
in my opinion, are those storms that are going to come out of the Western Caribbean. That is basically we're right now we're in October. That is the worst month for the Gulf Coast of Florida for serious landfalls. And here we are again. We just celebrated Michael's five year anniversary just a, just a couple of weeks ago. Not celebrating, but <laughs> well, we celebrated the recovery yeah. because they have done a remarkable job in recovery. Even though it has taken five years, you can still see the damage clearly just heading out to where the landfall was. Yeah, really good insights there, Casper. I wanted to shift over a little bit to the Tropical Weather Threat Society. Y'all are online sometimes almost every night of a week if there's a, a big threat out there. Kylie, could you tell us a little bit about that? What are y'all doing with the Tropical Weather Threat Society? How can people follow you and listen to your forecast? Uh, the Tropical Weather Threat Society is currently exclusively on Facebook, though we do have some plans to move out to other platforms um, in the future. Um, we are live most most nights, really, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, if there is either a name storm in the Atlantic or a um, area on the outlook with a 40% or higher chance of development, um, we just we cover pretty much everything that we can. We prioritize the Atlantic, uh, but we will also cover the Eastern Pacific and um, Western Pacific's uh, most of the time we do stay in the Northern Hemisphere, but that has a lot to do with the fact of when the Atlantic season is active is when we're live. Um, we, as far as Ian goes, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I know we did a lot of live streams because if there is a significant threat, we will go live more than just the 6 p.m. Um, for Ian, we were live pretty much all day and all night. Four times. Um, it, it, I know that we were running, we were running at minimum four lives a day at that time, uh, and they would last as long as anybody needed it. As long as people were still asking questions, new information was coming in. We were right there to communicate it to everybody. Yeah, and well, as a sorry. I just want to follow up with what Casper said there. As long as new information is coming in, as long as people are interactive, what I love about what y'all do, you're providing this platform, but the times that I've joined, it's been very interactive. You're you're not just giving a one-hour monologue. It's, it's very interactive with all these questions coming in, and y'all are you know really answering the questions that people have in real time. I just think it's amazing. Yes, and a lot of what we did with Ian ended up being personalized forecasts for people. Um, we would be sent locations, be it a county, a city. Even some people would give us like a nearby cross street um, to where they live. Someone private messaged us their address. Please don't do that. But um, we did get a lot of specific locations, and we would go on the live stream, and we would go down to those locations and we would show exactly what they are forecast to experience from Ian. We've done that for other storms too, but I know for Ian, at one point we had two hours worth of personalized forecasts all in one live stream. And we actually had to ask people to stop for a minute so that we could get through the rest of the, the main storm forecast and then come back because there were so many locations being asked for. 
And that's something that we probably wouldn't be able to do if we were a much larger page. But since we are currently a little bit of a smaller community that we've got built up, um, we're really able to give all of those individualized and personalized forecasts on our live streams. That's how you know what you're doing is really relevant when you constantly have this feed of people asking you questions, messaging you. It's like, okay, you're you're hitting them with information they want because they're interacting. They're giving you specific locations that you're forecasting for. Well, y'all, before we wrap up, it's just a short interview today. I wanted to ask you really, uh, it's been a, roughly a year since Hurricane Ian. I mean, what have we seen in the recovery? What are ways that communities are building back? Do you feel like they're building back better? Are perspectives different? What do you think the, the status of Southwest Florida now about a year after Hurricane Ian? So I follow what goes on down there extremely close because obviously it's my hometown. And I have been impressed with some locations and very disappointed in the recovery process of other locations. It seems like where, and just from my personal perspective, it seems like where the money was is where the money is going to those lower end communities, to those low income communities. They have been left pretty much to fend for themselves. There has been a lot of uh, you know, nonprofit organizations that have come in to really try to help those low income communities. But as far as the local government is concerned, I can't really say that I am happy with what they've done. Um, I, I believe that they could do a lot more, but I also have to give them time to figure out what the new normal is because going through something like that is completely different from going through what we went through with any of the previous storms. The only other one that I know that would be even a close similarity would have been Donna back in 1960. And that is before my time. I heard a lot of stories growing up regarding Donna, but even then the recovery would have been different at that time during 1960 than it would have been now today in 2023. So, I mean, it's going to be a very slow process, and I've been using the process that they're going through with Michael here in the Panhandle, in the Panama City, into the area where Michael laid, made landfall, as to, okay, what may we expect for Southwest Florida, being how long it took them here, knowing that Southwest Florida has a much higher population and a much older population down there yeah and i know Casper, we, i'm sorry go ahead kylie okay uh i know we tried to contribute as much as we can in the recovery process um from where we are in tallahassee um there were some local uh organizations up here that were doing supply runs down there donations we donated somewhere around i think it was about six hundred dollars five hundred five six hundred dollars worth yeah. of food supplies yeah non-perishable food supplies to the cajun navies um it was it was through actually a just a local small business and somebody had a truck and she was doing a whole run down there with 
bunch of donations and we actually donated enough that they had to get a second truck out there and do two runs down there um and, we and also, that came from all just us yeah because we, we just funded that we do not and will time. not accept any money for what we do at the tropical weather threat society we did do a bit of a fundraising campaign but none of the money went to us yeah no it's, it's, it's never for us i mean what, what we do is just out of the love of people out of making sure i lost everything in the hurricane charlie and i don't want anybody to go through what my wife and i had gone through at that point i know how it feels to lose everything and then you have to recover from nothing and it's just that's something that really sticks with us because there is no need for somebody else to go through that if we can properly convey to them what the risks are you know preparation is key and that is that is a real mainstay of our page is to make sure that we educate people with as much official information as possible. And then I love what you're doing. You know, you're not only forecasting this and engaging with people to let them know what they can expect, but then after the storm as well, you're reaching out to folks to help them recover. And that's just great. It's like you're coming full circle. And like you said, remembering what it was like when you lost everything and saying, hey, I want to help avoid that as much as I possibly can for others. So I uh, really appreciate that. Hey, as we wrap up, just two minutes left, both of you, biggest lessons learned from Hurricane Ian. <sighs> Control your emotions yes. because if you panic, you won't be able to make wise decisions. And I've seen a lot of that through our live streams, through the questions and comments that were coming through is that once the panic set in, they were people would ask questions that you knew in a normal set in just normal times, they would have already known the answer to that question. They would have never asked that question. But once presented with such a catastrophic situation on approach, it, it, it was completely gone. Just normalcy was just disappeared. No, that's yeah. true. If you can stay calm and, and um, manage and maintain your emotions, you're going to think clearer, make better decisions, and it's going to affect people around you. Kylie, what about you? Biggest lessons learned from Hurricane Ian? I think as far, I didn't do as much on the forecasting side. That was a lot more of Casper's wheelhouse, especially during when Ian was um, making landfall and approaching. I was a lot more helping on the recovery side. I think probably my biggest lesson was uh, I needed to stop looking at all of the damage pictures and making myself upset, um, especially when you're working with any sort of recovery from any kind of natural disaster, but especially a hurricane. There's a lot of accepting, okay, this happened. Obviously, it was tragic, but now we have to move forward. We can't sit and dwell on oh, no, this is the worst thing that's happened ever. Oh, gosh, we have to more focus in on, all right, now we have to pick up the pieces and keep going. 
Well, you know, that's a challenge. These disasters can be so overwhelming as we're seeing this pictures, we're hearing the stories. It can almost just be really overwhelming. I found too, sometimes you just need to reset and say, okay, take a breath, take a five minute walk. Let's reset. Okay. Moving a forward, moving forward. What can we control? What can we change and, and how can we help prepare for tomorrow kind of thing? Y'all, we're out of time, unfortunately. So much appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, everybody, check out Tropical Weather Threat Society. I know y'all are doing just amazing engagement throughout the tropical season and at, at conferences, even off season as well. Casper, uh, Kylie, really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast today. Wow, what an amazing podcast and so many great insights from our guests here in this episode. A few things really stood out to me. You know, at GeoTrack, we like to be on the ground in extreme weather events, but there's a lot of value to revisiting extreme events after some time as well. In this case, we're revisiting the impacts and recovery of Hurricane Ian after around one year. A few things really stood out to me in these interviews that we have on this episode of the podcast. The first one, I thought it was really interesting how Matt Devitt said so many people focus on the center line in the cone of uncertainty for hurricane forecast. He explained that the cone represents an area that has about a two-thirds probability that the eye will track through that area. But his social science surveys revealed that the vast majority of his listeners actually want to get away from plotting out the center line of the cone. We've talked about this in a lot of our workshops and conferences. When you have that center line in the cone, a lot of people really fixate on that. They start to think of a hurricane forecast as a line instead of an area of potential possibilities. And also keep in mind, this is just plotting out where the eye of the storm is likely to go. And the impacts are often uh, far to the right of the track of that. So it's interesting. We a general consensus that we've gotten in a lot of our conferences and workshops is getting people to think about an area instead of a line or a broad area of coastline instead of a, a landfall point can really help them better understand impacts in their area. Sounds like Matt has done some great social science work interacting with his listeners, and he got overwhelming feedback that a lot of people said, let's get rid of that center line and maybe just focus more broadly on the cone. Number two, I really thought it was interesting when Matt was talking about people in evacuation zones just needing to get away from the most dangerous flooding. And he mentioned you don't necessarily need to travel hundreds of miles away when you evacuate. In cases like Hurricane Ian, people could have really gone 10 to 20 miles away, gotten out of that storm surge zone and gotten to safety in a 20-minute drive. We knew that dozens of people were, were drowning and dying there in Fort Myers Beach. Matt said that Hertz Arena, just 20 minutes away, had a lot of capacity that was unused. It really gets you thinking in these cases, especially where people say we don't have time to get out or they start thinking evacuation is this really long and far process. A lot of times there may be more of a public shelter that may not be the most comfortable thing in the world, but it could save your life. Really interesting insights there from Matt that not only relate to Southwest Florida, but our hurricane evacuation zones wherever we are along the coast. Number three, I thought it was really interesting what Casper and Kylie touched on about some of the insightful reasons why people were complacent in Southwest Florida. One of these reasons is that they never saw a storm like Ian before. We often hear people say, I've been here 30 or 40 years. My house never flooded. That doesn't mean the next storm can't be the one that not only floods your house, but in a case of a fast moving storm surge, it could actually wash your house away. Also, there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, say that they've lived there and they really have this, this idea of expertise that that they've seen everything that mother nature can show that can throw at them in storms like ian we've seen mother nature can do some things sometimes that you never imagined possible even if you've lived in a place 40 50 60 years 
Number two, the conversation with Casper and Kylie also reminded me of the importance of being plugged in with a community. They run the Tropical Weather Threat Society, and this is really designed to be an educational platform. Also, uh, they're, they're really a blessing to so many people. They are having an interactive tropical weather discussion most evenings if there's something out there in the Atlantic Basin. And they'll even go so far as really interact with their listeners and their participants, sometimes even doing location-based forecasting. What's likely to happen in your zip code or at your address as far as the wind and flood impacts? Y'all, that's a level of personalization it's hard to top that. And I've interacted on some of their evening tropical weather forecast. And it's it's a long discussion. This isn't a quick bulletin. Uh, often the discussion lasts for more than an hour. People have questions uh, and, and there's a lot of discussion about the science and really what's going on, but also what you can expect where you live. Also, another thing about Casper, Kylie, and the whole team there at the Tropical Weather Threat Society, what I love about it, they're not only forecasting the impacts of extreme weather, then post-event in the aftermath, they're often doing what they can do to help people out. They're providing relief. They're donating, donating non-perishable food and just giving of their selves to help people in the disaster zone. Like Casper said, they were severely impacted by Hurricane Charlie in 2004. They know what it's like to lose everything, and they're doing what they can to help people that have been hit to recover. I think that's amazing. Again, if people make donations to them, they don't keep the money for themselves. They pass it along to those that are most needy in the disaster zone. Y'all, this is what it's about. I mean, this is the example of what we hope to see in the hurricane community, that we're not only having people forecasting and helping people prepare, but then having the heart to really help people that have been inf inflicted with disaster afterwards. So hats off to everyone there at the Tropical Weather Threat Society, Casper and Kylie. I've met y'all a few times and it's always been a joy and I just will really enjoy continuing to follow your work and an encouragement for our listeners, follow them and get plugged in with what they're doing when tropical season uh, comes around again. I also wanted to thank James Grime, who works closely with Casper and Kylie on the Tropical Weather Threat Society. He took time to meet with us in Southwest Florida after Ian last year and to do an, Ian, to an, an interview. You can hear our interview as well as many others interviewed in GeoTrek podcast number 49, Voices from the Hurricane Ian Disaster Zone. James also put in a big effort for this current podcast to coordinate interviews and to help us set things up. Always appreciate what James is doing there in Southwest Florida. Well, everyone, we're out of time. Thanks so much for your constant support of our podcast. We're always trying to bring inspirational content and educational content from professional experts and those impacted by disasters. I'm Dr. Howe signing off. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.